I don't know what Carrie did last week, and I'm not asking. Uh, he and I talked about it on the phone a little bit. He said he was going to go off script. We joked about that for a little bit, and that's all that I know that he did. So I apologize if I am colliding with anything that was said last week. Um, if it's too boring, just wave your hand at me, and I'll make it up on the fly. <laughs> We're going to start incision two today. We will not finish it. It's not because I'm trying to drag this out. It is the longest uh, of the six disputations, and there's just some really good stuff in here that I think is both very convicting and very encouraging, and so I want to try it. If you're looking at my printed notes, there are some editorial mistakes, no, no surprise. If you're looking at a digital copy, I tried to fix them uh, before class, and so you might be looking at a better copy. message of Malachi is just strange in our ears. It doesn't, doesn't work because he talks about priests and it talks about God directly interacting with his people and it all seems so foreign and so strange and so out of context for us. My concern is always the same. That You may be impressed by my ability to put together a good history lesson or a good polemic, a good argument about something that I feel strongly about, um, a good debate perhaps. Maybe you're entertained by the things that I say, or amused by some philosophical argument, but you fail to understand the centrality of the message of Malachi. And I'm going to keep hammering on that until you see the weight of Scripture in the message of Malachi. That's exactly what I want you to do. I want you to see it in its context. I want you to see it as a book that concludes the revelation of God from creation, or even before creation a little bit, creation till that silent period preceding the coming of Christ. And I want you to see how the New Testament picks that up and just drives it and drives it and drives it. There is so much in it that just draws attention to these central themes of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if you miss that centrality, then it's too easy to dismiss the disputations of Malachi, and that would be a travesty, frankly. I'll make a comment later, so you'll hear it. It's actually a little south of the center of your page there, so you'll hear it again. But there's only three kinds of people. There's the Romans 1, 22, 23, 25 people, right? They see God, they deny him, they shake their fist in his face, they rebel against them, he turns them over to the foolishness of their hearts, and that's it. There's, there's no way back. Yeah, you could debate that. But it's very clear in Scripture that he turns them over to the foolishness of their hearts, right? He condemns them. He removes himself from them. He removes the means by which they may approach him. That's one kind of person. There's a second kind of person, and it turns out there's a lot of these kind of people, and much of the scripture is written to them. And there are people that have the exercise of, the, of religion, the religion, my bias is showing through there. It's only one. They manifest the exercise of religion in their daily lives, and there's no God in it. They name God. They go to worship as if they had a God. But there's no God. And much of your Bible is written to people exactly like that. Right? People that are being challenged. 
about their formalistic religion, their empty faith. It's all through the scriptures. It begins in Exodus. We'll look at a passage or two in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. I can't remember which one makes the point best, but it'll be one of those. It appears in Psalms, in, in my favorite psalm, one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 51. And it's here in Malachi, and it appears all through the New Testament in the epistles. What are the letters of the apostles, if not letters to a group of people that are wandering away from their God? For various reasons. So there's the Romans people, Romans 1, right after 20 and 21, right? That are just rejecting God. There's those that are naming his name with no substance and no truth to it. And there's a remnant. And that's what they're called. There's a remnant. A remnant of people that keeps faith with God. I want to be a remnant. Part of the remnant. And I want you to too. Because I have a singular thesis. And that is that everything is desperate without God. And that's not an intellectual thesis for me. It's one I am forced to apply Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Saturdays are usually good. It's mostly family and just work, although occasionally my backhoe fails on me while I'm in it, and that drives me nuts, and then I'm desperate again. And I don't know how to fix it, and I have to try. I'm being facetious there a little bit, the Saturday thing. And then Sunday I stand up here and I know all my faults and failures and I try to teach and I struggle with feeling like a hypocrite the entire time. And if God is not there making up what I truly lack, like not out of some goofy humility, but I truly just lack it. I lack the righteous character to stand in front of you and proclaim God's word. On my best day, I lack it. On my worst day. God is the single greatest value. And without him, I I truly don't understand how people get up in the morning and put one foot in front of the other without God. Not my notes. We're doomed. We're never going to make it. I want you to see some history here. Again, large theme, right? We've studied the history of Israel. I took you through those first three stages of the exile. We talked about the Babylonian and Persian kings. We talked about the three stages of the return. We talked about all the Lord did there through recorded decrees of those kings. We actually have the record of those things. How amazing is that? But I want you to see some key passages that really summarize that history out of Isaiah. Isaiah 1, 2 through 4. I discovered this verse 15, 20 years ago, and it just impressed me so much. And Isaiah is rebuking the people. Obviously, the exile is still to come at this stage of the game. But he he says, you have despised Yahweh. And we'll come back to that word, despised, in uh, Malachi. So it's a a good setting, right? It's good soil to build our, our... Uh, disputation on today. Verses 2 through 4, it says, They have despised Yahweh. Children have I reared and brought up. Notice that very 
you know, family term. He didn't say slaves, didn't say servants, didn't say conquered peoples. He said children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Again, that word despised here, there, and then here. They are utterly estranged. And then I should not have verse 5 and 6 there. That's a cut and paste error, so I'll skip it for now. The next one, right, fundamental problem is that the God's people have despised him and they are estranged from him. That, that sentence by itself should bother you. God's people have despised him and are estranged from him, right? That's a category problem. Well, which are you? Are you God's people or are you despising him and estranged from him? And who, who's calling you God's people? Now, in this case, Isaiah is. So clearly there's a, an opportunity to be redeemed. There's an opportunity to be bought back. Don't ever forget that as I work through this, right? I'm going to drive the messages hard, but don't forget these are messages from God to the people that he is saying, come back to me. Come back. Don't suffer in the way that you're suffering. Don't, don't ever forget that as, as foundational to this message. That's the fundamental problem. The experienced result that they have as a result of their problem are these consequences of the rebellion. God is good to give us consequences. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. I was trying to teach a youth group, Isaiah, 15, 20 years ago when I ran into this, and I was like, what are we talking about there? And how do I make that work for a bunch of teenagers? Well, it turns out super applicable. All you got to do is read it in its context. He's talking to his children, and he's basically saying, I have disciplined you so much and so consistently, constantly trying to, like, the next thing and the next thing. Oh, that's a distraction? Let me discipline you. That's a distraction? Let me discipline you. That's the place you're struggling in rebellion? Let me discipline you. And that discipline has been so persistent and so amplified that the bruises, if you will, of the discipline cover the, the child from head to toe. Now, put aside all of your thoughts right now about God's abusing his children. Pick it up with him. And good luck, by the way. That the, rather than focus on that, at that aspect of it, I would implore you to, to see your own rebellion there, your own stiff-neckedness. I don't think that's a word, but you get the idea. Right? It's a group of people that will not respond to discipline. Light, grievous. Right? They, they just won't respond. And as a result, they're bruised from the top to the bottom. The Lord is literally saying, I, there's no other way to discipline you that hasn't already been accomplished. Your body bears the marks of it. Even while I struggle with my own frustrations, temptations, despairs, whatever, even when I'm groveling in my own miseries, obviously dramatic language, but mentally, 
sometimes it feels a lot like that. I'll tell you what I know in my heart. God's people do not suffer under the experience of despair. That's what we do when we're despising the Lord's name and are estranged from him. The characteristic of God's people in relationship to God is joy and praise and thanksgiving, both as a discipline and as an outflowing of what the Lord is accomplishing in your lives. If you are discouraged by Isaiah 5 and 6, I want you to know for sure, certain all you need do is surrender. Stop being stiff-necked and rebellious. I'd like to pursue that longer, but Isaiah is not the subject of our class. Malachi is. So I'll have to leave that to your study. That's their experience as a result of their rebellion. And the re- so that's what God puts them in, right? He, he creates that experience for them as a result of their rebellion. And their response ends up being formalistic religion. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come before me, who has required this trampling of my courts? What do they do? They keep up the religious formalism. Oh, we're going to offer sacrifices. We're going to trample around God's court. We're going to go to the temple. We're going to observe the festivals. We're going to do the required religious observances. And he says, who cares? And as a matter of fact, stop treading all over my house, making a mess, when you have no real desire to be with me in that house. People's response is formalistic religion. religion. All of the careful observances of the law and no heart. And still no joy. And what's God's response to that? Or what's his promise responding to that? Come, let us reason together. And you will see that same statement in Malachi. Come now, let us reason. Let's, let us think clearly about this. It makes no sense what you are doing. You cannot get there to God. You cannot get to the blessing that you long for and desire. You cannot get to the salvation or the redemption or the relief or the joy or the patience or the courage or the affection or the fullness or the fruitfulness or I don't know, you fill in the blank. You cannot get there by your own efforts. And I think we all know that. I don't, I don't think that's a profound statement, especially in this church, right? I, I don't think that's profound at all. And yet there's a piece of it that somehow sticks in our heads and clogs up the gears. You know what you're passionate about. Is it your hurts? 
Is it your sorrows? Is it your weeping over the consequences of your sins? Or is it truly Christ? I think I told you that I picked up Luke. I'd like to say it was in my own wisdom, but we all know better. Picked up Luke after the study of Malachi in my small group, and it has been amazing so far. Just the way it continues the message, as though there were no hiccups. And the very first two characters you meet, God, you meet that God is engaging, that's what I was trying to say, in Luke are effectively, I'm generalizing a little bit here, Elizabeth and Mary. And I love their responses. Their husbands, husband, sorry, depending on how you look at it, I guess. Um, you know, Zacharias clearly got it wrong in the temple, right? What do you mean you're going to do these things? We're too old for this. He responds in unbelief. Elizabeth does the right thing and just rejoices. And the wording is such that it looks like she actually took five months out of her life to go rejoice. Says she hid herself for five months. And the only thing we have connected to that is her giving praise to the Lord and rejoicing. It was like she was too excited to go do anything else except for, I just got to go take this time to rejoice. I have no idea what that looks like. Don't ask me. I'm just trying to tell you what I learned. And Mary, man, she does a phenomenal job. Just let me be your servant, Lord. Yeah, you just told me that I'm about to experience something that is likely to get me stoned because it's in violation of the law. But just let me be your servant. Let's just reason together. Just surrender. And if the Lord has a desert wilderness prepared for you for your next 40 years, see illusion, is that good enough for you? As long as he walks with you? As long as he provides for you in that wilderness? Do you honestly believe that the Lord can take you into the wilderness for 40 years and yet satisfy the fullness of your heart in all ways and in all things, including the shoes that you wear and the bread that you eat? Right out of scripture, by the way, I'm not making that up. Do you believe that he loves you? Do you believe that you're one of his children? The allusion to him loving you is the first incision, right? The first disputation, I have loved you. I am loving you. How have you loved this guy? I don't need to repeat the three kinds of people. I was kind of building to that with my argument, but I defeated myself by giving it to you first. There's only three kinds of people. Which are you? Then we looked at God's sovereign hand through the reign of pagan kings, starting with Cyrus to bring his people home in three stages, 536, 458, and 445. And then we talked about the fact that the people's expectations were unmet and discouragement and despair and frustration and fears and doubts and worries choked them until they went through the exercise of religion with no heart. I have a it's a free reference there that check out uh, the Bible project. I uh, found it, actually my wife found it a long time ago. Angela, you all know Angela. I don't know why I'm talking about her like she's in the third person. Um, She found it a long time ago and she used to watch it with the kids when they were younger. Really cool. 
Uh, it's basically a guy drawing a cartoon on the screen, very high quality, but drawing a cartoon on the screen as he's overviewing each of the books of, I think, only the Old Testament. But I think he's got one or two for each of the books of the Old Testament. Super cool, even as an adult. I love them. In about seven minutes, you can get like the mega like. You don't get like. You get the mega themes of each of the books of the Bible. I actually, for reasons that aren't clear to me this morning, did the two on, no, did one on Ezekiel. There are two. I did one on Ezekiel this morning and one on Malachi just because I wanted to see, well, how does he do it? Um, and uh, super cool. Uh, it, it, what provoked the thought was it came up in a Google search that I was doing about an unrelated topic and I was like, huh, I'm going to share that with them. So it's free. If you have children, super cool, very accessible. Um, accessible um, by even younger people. So highly recommended. Young world, but especially for you that have children. Uh, Makes books like Malachi and Ezekiel approachable, even if they're really heavy books. Then we begin our second incision, right? I have loved you. How have you loved us? And he responds to that. And here he is. Uh, picking up some of those same themes that we see in uh, Isaiah, which we'll dig into in just a second. It's directed primarily at the priests. You see that in verse 6 and then in chapter 2, verse 1. But the people are implicated because they are the ones bringing the polluted offering, right? It's formalistic religion exercised by the people and condoned and taught by the priests. Um, I have that reference to 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. Again, I, I told you earlier, I do not want you to be confused. This is God's message to the people of Israel. That is the context for this. You are not the people of Israel. But you do see God relating to his people in a way that helps inform us. And be, because Christ and the apostles pick up these themes in the New Testament, we still learn a lot as far as filling out those messages um, in the New Testament. So I don't want you to be confused, but there is a New Testament uh, parallel to that in uh, 2 Timothy there. Uh, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. A.K.A. your formalistic religion works just fine. It's A-OK. Look at all the right things that you're doing. Look at how you've checked the box. Look at how you say the right things. And when it comes to doctrine, you quote the right definitions or the right books or the right commentators or the right pastors. It's all good. accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Again, 2 Timothy, right? Paul addressing a young pastor to say, make sure you are not like them. This is what you'll see, and this is how people will respond to you, but do not be like them. This disputation is the largest one. 
It's still in disputation form, but you'll notice it's got a compound form, which is a little different, right? A disputation should have four parts, assertion, question, response, and implication. This one's got assertion, question, response, question, response, implication. All still dealing with the same topic. You see the assertion of Yahweh there in uh, the first two parts of verse 6. Where is the honor due me? Where is the respect due me? People respond with, how have we despised you? And God responds to them, by offering polluted food on my altar. How have we polluted it? They question. By thinking that the Lord's table may be despised with defective offerings. Specifically, I think it's important to, even here, to begin to shift your mind to defective food offerings. Now, it is possible that the larger sense of offerings was in view here. The sin offering and the drink offering, meaning like praise offerings and and you know, other offerings as well. It's, it's, it's possible that there's a more general sense here. But the language used is of food offerings. And it's a very specific type of offering in the Old Testament that always magnifies the idea of special relationship with the Lord. And I'll try to, I hope I have the time, but I'll try to touch on that here at the end of this lesson a little bit. But I just want you to have that in your mind right now, right? As we're talking about offerings here, while it's possible that there's a, an allusion to general offerings, the language that is used is of food offering and table. That's right in these verses. And so I think it's preferred that we think about this in the context of the food offering or the table of showbread in the temple context, and its signification of our special, intimate relationship with the Lord and his provision for us in that relationship. I think you, you blunt the emphasis of the passage if you just see this as the general, well, sin offering. I didn't quite do my sin offering the right way. Well, you didn't, but that's not necessarily what's most in view here. What's most in view here is your heart is far from me. Your heart is far from me. And you're going to get confused about your need to be more righteous before the Lord in response to this passage. If you don't understand, that's not what's primarily in view here. What's primarily in view is more separated to the Lord, more dedicated to the Lord. The righteousness is expected to follow, by the way. So I'm not diminishing that. And anybody that knows me knows I love the law of the Lord. So much so that many of you think I'm a heretic sometimes, the way I talk about it. But that is not what's primarily in view here, I contend. That's that, that shorthand for, I may be completely wrong, and you should think about it for a minute, right? Principal concern? Right, Multiple questions uh, occur here, and you need to be watching it, but the principal concern is, is that the people ceased from assigning any value uh, to the Lord's name in their lives. Despised can be better thought, right? We mean that word, it's like hated. 
but that, that doesn't bear out well with either the Hebrew or the Greek. Despised can be better thought of as disdained. It literally means to treat a thing or person as worthless, and we'll come back to that a little bit. Um, and then I just wanted you to notice two questions and two responses. So that's the introduction for this. You had some context, some history in Isaiah. I wanted you to see the the same big themes being played out there. It's also in, again, Exodus and Deuteronomy and um, Ezekiel and Daniel and so many other books. But I, I just wanted you to see it again there, that you could see the bigness of it and then introduce the... Um, overall argument there. This where's my Bible? Uh, this despising. Um, so I, I guess I'll just read it to you real quick. Let's uh, actually. Can I get somebody to do? I tell you what. Uh, what do I need? Six nine. Yeah. Um, I tell you what. Can I get somebody to read from one six to through the end of the chapter? Through the end of the chapter. That's where we'll stop. Can I get somebody to read 1 6 through the end? The son honors his father and a servant his master. And if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, How will we despise thy name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, How have we defiled thee? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, My, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery, and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? Be cursed, but cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock, and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Thank you. What version are you reading? An ASV. An ASV. Just for fun, how many of you are reading out of an ESV? That's generally how many out of an NAS? That's actually a better ratio than usual. For an NAS church, most of us read out of the ESV. <laughs> Thank you, that was helpful. And actually, I appreciated some of the differences in your wording there. Uh, it's wording, I guess is a better way to say it. Um, yeah, so we're going to focus mostly on the first few verses there, six, seven-ish, um, to get the 
themes. And then we're going to see how, next week, we'll see how the Lord turns that and addresses the, the priests in particular as leaders of his people and what he says the response would be. And I think in that response, no, I contend, in that response, you see something about the Lord, how the Lord expects us to deal with this situation, right? It's not really left up to us to guess. We, we get a perfect description of it here, um, here in Malachi. So this week we'll look at the accusation itself and some of its background. Next week, the implications of that uh, for the priesthood and the people. Uh, and that will be it for incision two. And then we'll get rolling. Um, it's important to look here a little bit at those first few verses. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Also translated respect, right? That reverential fear is what the NAS is trying to get at there. Honor itself is a word uh, that you all know um, from the name Ichabod, um, which was used by Phineas's wife uh, when... What's Phineas's brother's name? Eli's a priest, the two wicked sons, Phineas and... Hoffman. thank you. Uh, it wasn't a test, I actually forgot. Um, they died in battle because they were misusing uh, the Ark of the Covenant, right? They thought they could manipulate God for their own benefits. Kind of like formalistic religion, isn't it? Um, and the Philistines took the Ark, killed the two sons. When Eli heard the message, he fell over dead. Um... Phineas's wife immediately, uh, as a, apparently as a result of the shock of the news or the horribleness of the news, uh, enters her birth pains and delivers a son who she seems uh, grossly unconcerned with and begins to repeat herself over and over again that his name should be Ichabod because the glory of the Lord has departed. That, we say Kabod because it's Ichabod, but it's actually Kavad. Um, it means honor or glory. And Ichabod literally means not or no glory. So that, that word honor is that word Kavad. Same word as glory in all the other places and is always synonymous with the manifestation of God. Really interesting. When you look at the Shekinah glory settled over the temple, it's his kavad that is there. It's his glory that is there. That word is almost always, that particular word is almost always, you'll find exceptions, so don't get upset with me, is almost always reserved for that amazing manifestation of God's people. It appears, obviously not in Hebrew, but in Greek, in Luke as well, um, when... Um, the holy, the, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit surround Mary at that, at least it appears in the, the text, although it's not perfectly definitive, at that instant that Christ was conceived, when it talks about the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon her. The, the Greek uses the same word as it has used in the uh, Septuagint to translate this word glory. And I just love that. It's always the 
the manifestation of God that makes it undeniable that the great God is in their presence and that there is no need or no want that is relevant at that point in time. I, I love that those two pieces of it. Not only that I am with you, but suddenly anything that I needed or wanted or felt was lacking in my life is no longer in view because God's glory is manifest, because the truth is piercing all of my other untrue thoughts and feelings. I I love that aspect of God's glory, and that's what's here. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my glory? I don't know if this works for some of you. I'm never going to finish. I don't know if this works for some of you, and and I am aware of all of my faults so much more clearly than most of you would give me credit for. And that is particularly true as a father. If you would like to be depressed someday, let's get a cup of coffee, and I'll tell you how I have failed in so many ways particularly as a father. Not an edifying experience. But my kids are afraid of me. And I don't mean like they're worried I'm going to punch them. And if my kids are afraid of me as a broken father, how how much more should we be afraid when the glory of the Lord is made manifest to us? And you say, well, I haven't seen that glory. Be careful. I feel the same way all the time, but the New Testament is very clear that Christ's ascension was for the purpose of securing the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. That the glory would no longer be separated by a shroud, would no longer be segregated to a temple, but would be present and manifest in you. That's the truth. What we feel beyond that is our problem and something we need to be speaking to the Lord about, but that is the truth. It has a root meaning, I'm not making this up, by the way, and or you know, stretching it too, too hard, has a root meaning of weighty or heavy, and that's where this idea of glory comes from. This significant thing, right, is happening. And it's a kind of a superlative sense. You know, the weightiness of it is superlative in the sense that that's God's glory. That's God's honor. But it comes from this idea of weighty or heavy, and it creates a nice symmetry with the idea of being despised to think lightly of, to not attribute significance to. So these verses are really talking about that which should be the heaviest, if you will, the weightiest of things to us, values, honor, glory, reverential fear, respect, and instead, hmm, hmm. later on, uh, I think, what did you have in yours? Something about sniffing? Sniff yeah, disdainfully sniff. Where is that? That's in verse 13, right? Yeah. And you disdainfully sniff at it. Yep. But you say, what a weariness this is. This coming to the Lord part, right? 
and you disdainfully sniff at it. I think uh, we have snort at it in the ESV. I kind of like disdainfully sniff better. It's more faithful to the previous, you know, wordplay for glory and disdain. I like how tiresome, too, because it's more, it implies more of the attitude of the person. Yeah. What does ESV say then? Snort at it. No, no, no. The weirdness. Uh, what a weariness, yeah. Same idea, but again, I, I agree. I, I like the, which is not something I say all the time about the NAS, but I do like that wording better. Um, no clue what I'm talking about. God is Father. I don't want to beat this over the head, but there are some really good references there. Um and they're obviously Old Testament references. You see the beginning. Um, I would really encourage you to look those up. I, I Even this morning, I was reviewing my hand notes to put them in these notes, but I didn't want to just transcribe them and do the last time I did the lesson again. I, I wanted to have the Lord speak to me again, right? Convict my heart afresh. And so I was looking up all the references, and I had fun in this particular section with the References as father. The references as master actually threw me off. I had to go back and be like, why did I write these verses down? They don't make any sense. And then I I caught the thought um, and uh, enjoyed that as well. So I, I'm not going to go over them, but please look them up. The highlighted ones there um, in the God as Father are really good uh, references in the New Testament that I like because it says that God is your father as a New Testament believer, but he directly equates it to and if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's son as well, and Noah's son as well, and Moses' son as well. And so there's a really interesting intersection there with this same statement in Malachi, right? If, if, if God can say to Israel, I am your father and you are my son, then Galatians gives us a warrant to say us too, right? So it really puts us right there in that same place. If God is your father, where is his honor? And the same for master. Um, the part that's uh, key there is the part I have in parentheses. I, I couldn't figure out why I used some of those references, but it talks about God as your master as Adonai, or Adonai. Uh, sorry, Adonai is how we say it in English, but uh, Adonai Yahweh, right? Um, Lord God is really how that's that, that would be translated most literally. And there, again, are some great, uh, passages there that you should look up. Um, I walked you through the f- side note there, First Samuel 4, 1 through 11, that story about the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and even there, right? What does, God, what does God do? The Ark of the Covenant is like the seat of God's glory in the midst of the temple behind that shroud, Right? And when the people begin to try to use God for their purposes in their way with no heart for God, he, he actually lets the, uh, thank you, I had Philippians stuck in my head and I was like, nope, yeah, wrong, not, that's not right. Uh, he actually lets the Philistines take it. And you know what's amazing? Hophni and Phineas are like, oh yeah, we're just going to take the ark down there. We're going to do what we want. We'll, we'll take God wherever we want. Look, we got God. We're, we're on it. The Philistines fall down in reverential fear. They're like, oh no, God, the God that freed these people from Egypt and slaughtered all the Egyptians, he is now here. We're afraid. And they do this stupid pep talk, like act like men, fight hard, or we're going to end up being servants. Israel despises God. 
They think little of God. We can take him wherever we want. We can do whatever we want with his presence. The Philistines are like, Poof, this is bad. And God is more pleased, and I'm embellishing a little bit, so again, feel free to disregard all this. But God is, seems, because he allows it, seems pleased to go with the Philistines. Now, we know how that works out. Not well for them. But he's pleased at that instant to go with the Philistines. He does it again in Ezekiel. When Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of the Lord, the, the place where, Ezekiel 10, where it records that the glory of the Lord departed the temple. By the way, there's more references to formalistic religion there. Are you getting how huge this theme is? How pervasive it is in the scriptures? Men acting out religion according to their own will and their own way and their own plan. Unsurrendered lives. We're going to serve you, God, the way we want to. But in Ezekiel 10, when God's glory departs from the temple, do you know where it goes? It shows up in Babylon. On the river of an irrigation canal that Ezekiel is sitting next to, when he has this vision about God's glory departing from the temple. I thought that was amazing. By the way, if you watch the whole Bible project, then that's in there too. With pictures. God's glory is made manifest to his people, but when they approach him their way, in their time, with no heart, with no real value for the Lord. His glory departs. And it leaves it leaves all manner of desperation, despair, discouragement behind. The next one, right? Oh, priests who despise my name. So he kind of overviewed it to everybody here. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name, who think little of my name, who do not treat my name with weightiness. We do not have time to go over the verses, but there are so many in the scriptures that talk about what the Lord intends to do with his name. His name is synonymous with his identity, and that is why it is so important that you frankly begin to translate that low-caps Lord in every place you see it in the Old Testament as Yahweh. The Lord is generic. Yahweh is his name, and that is the particular thing that he gave to his people when he wanted to identify his, himself with his people and show them the peculiar relationship they were in with him. He said, you will call me by my name. And you have despised my name. You have thought little of the glory of the Lord. Well, how have we despised your name? Uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm skipping, right? Uh, you can read for yourself all the times that despising the name of God occurs in this passage. Twice in one six, twice in one eleven, once in one fourteen, two two, two five, um, and then there's some um, 
references for you that you can pick up that I think are significant. When I put references in there, it's because I got excited about it when I found it. I'm not sharing those references just to try to, you know, heap up proof for my statement. I wrote them because I thought they were exciting to read them. So take a look. The arrow there got messed up when I printed it. It should be pointed to Exodus 34, 6, and 7. In the digital notes, I think I corrected that. Notice I put off to the side there, you've got to read Exodus 34.10. Um, and then the only other thing I want to say there from Exodus is I, I love when the Lord is talking about people despising his name. Moses, Moses says, Yahweh, Yahweh, right? The name of God twice. And this is in the context of him writing out the uh, Ten Commandments on the second set of tablets. Go in the midst of us, for we are a stiff-necked people. Um, again, we, we just don't have the time, but Exodus 34, 6, and 7 make clear the correlation between food sacrifices and honoring the name of God. It's addressed to the priesthood. And he says, you must be holy so that you can bring this food sacrifice to me or else my name will be disdained. So there's this direct correlation between the priesthood and their obligation to bring the food sacrifice. And it specifically says food sacrifice. Note that again. And the disdaining of the Lord's name, to think little of the Lord's name. If the priests that are charged with the peculiar care of God's temple and God's glory don't think enough to do it right, why should the people? Don't forget that you are called the priesthood of Christ in the New Testament. Why should the world forget that? Why should our children, why should our spouses, why should our relatives think weighty of the Lord if we treat him lightly? I've got a bunch more references there. I would encourage you to go through them, but I'm just making that point bigger and bigger and bigger, right? I'm, I'm, I'm just soaking my own mind in, in how pervasive this theme is throughout the scriptures. And as I, as I began to realize that myself, I got excited about it, and I started sketching down all these references, right? And so all I've done here is pulled, pulled out, yeah, that's what I want to say. All I've done here is pulled out a few of those references that I think make that point the best. And so I've shared them with you. Please read them. They're exciting. Notice how the priests, um, you know, the second bullet of that uh, third page, it looks like. Uh, notice that the priests had no trouble getting to the, the substance of the argument here. How have we despised your name? How have we made little of your glory by offering polluted food, again, food upon the altar? But you say, how have we polluted you? And, and, and notice the switch there. How have we despised you? By offering polluted food. What would you have expected the subject of their question to be? He said you've offered polluted food. You would have expected them to say, how have we offered polluted food? But they didn't say that. 
They said, how have we polluted you? Right? They understood, if, if I may, again, exercise some liberty here. They understood that the food was all about that intimate relationship with the Lord. That preparing the right food was a manifestation of valuing the one that they were to be sharing that food with. If I don't ever want you to come over my house again, or I care little about whether you ever come again, I'll offer you things I probably wouldn't want to eat on a normal basis. But if I'm trying to honor you, if I'm trying to show you respect, if I'm trying to ingratiate myself to you, whether for noble reasons or ignoble reasons, right? I'm going to do a better job. If that's true of us, how much more God? How do you do with that at just a basic, just a basic level? How do you do with that? Not just on Sunday, but we had a chance every morning to get up and live our lives before the face of the Lord. Are you indifferent to what you bring before the face of the Lord during the day? Like, it just doesn't occur to you that there's an activity that needs to be accomplished that day? Some preparation, as it were? Some surrender? Some occupation that needs to be affected during the course of the day that you might spend your day before your glorious Lord? Is it rebellion? Is it totally transactional? I'm going to get up every morning and do my devotions because what I want God to do is give me that promotion. Or fill in the blank. How do you do at preparing your sacrifice before the Lord. They understood that what they were actually doing was disdaining the one that they were to have that relationship with. And so they do the right translation and they say, how have we polluted you? Did a little linguistic study. I, I, I try not to be, you know, I try not to be What's the word I'm looking for? The opposite of when you do something diligently. Whatever that word is, that's what I'm going for. So insert that word in your minds. I try not to be that way when I teach. And so I, I did some study on this one. Many translations, older translations, do have, how have you polluted the food? But the majority of translations have, how have you polluted how have we polluted you? And it's the preferred translation because it's a hard translation, meaning it's not one that would have just fallen out as you spoke it, right? Everybody would have been reading along on, well, you've despised the food. How have we despised the food? We've polluted the food. How, how have we polluted the food, right? That would have been the natural ones for scribes to make a mistake at because it just flowed logically, right? Get all the subjects to agree with each other. The one that doesn't make sense and makes your mind trip is the one where you convert it to, you've polluted the food. How have we polluted you? And that is a general rule of translation and textual criticism that the difficult translation is the one to be preferred. I don't mean the, the, the lunatic translation. Just the more difficult one. When the, when the words and the grammar allow for it, the more difficult translation is the preferred translation. It's the one where people were being careful, assiduous with their translation work, and they went, ooh, 
That was a little shocking that the grammar did that, but that is the faithful translation, and so we will record it like that. I think it's best to stop there and just ask you the question in, in conclusion, right? We'll, we'll come back, we'll pick it up, we'll flesh out this Yahweh's table thing, which is really just trying to draw out this idea of the food offering and make it somewhat distinct from sin offering or some of the other offerings that I think your mind might regularly go to. So we'll come back to that. And we'll try to make that bigger, right? Try to appreciate it more and move on into the last section of this next week. But I think you've gotten enough from my ramblings this morning. How are we doing? How are we doing at bringing a right offering to the Lord? There has never been a time in the scriptures, as far as we know, and I can think of examples in Genesis, and I can think of a psalm example, and I've shared some from Ezekiel, and there's one in Exodus, and there's another one in Deuteronomy, and there's several in Isaiah. There has never been a time when sacrifices seemed to be, by themselves, seemed to be an acceptable offering to the Lord. In every one of those chapters of your Bible, or maybe I should say God's Bible, he has rebuked people when they came with those sacrifices in an empty heart. He said, stop bringing the sacrifices, and instead, come, come and be with me. And long to be with me. And love to be with me. And by the way, bring all of yourself to me. The hurts, the frustrations, the despairs, the expectations, the inconsistencies in your mind, the things that you think are true but seem to be in conflict with your experiences that are really driving you nuts, like a thorn in your hand, bring all of that to me. Come, reason with me about these things. God was not displeased with Job in his argumentation until Job began to get the relationship backwards. And God went, whoa, who's glorious and who's not here? Bring all those things to the Lord. How are you doing at that? Please, please think through that in your New Testament context. I will argue, and I have no basis for this other than believing it to be true. I will argue that there is not a person in this room that isn't exercising formalistic religion in some way, some way shape, size, or form. Either intentionally, I'll say maliciously, right? You're just, you've decided this is as far as you're going to go with God. I think many of you, if I had to guess, would be more likely to do it defensively. That just hurts, God. That, that thing, that area, that, that place where you have called me to walk in a place I would never have chosen for myself, and frankly, I don't know how I'm going to do it. So defensively, you've decided, well, this is how I'll serve you. I, I will numb the pain of that place that I don't want to go, that walk I don't want to walk. I'll, I'll only do it in this way, this far, for this long, with this much surrender. And the rest I'll make up with a, a bright face on Sunday mornings and a good word of truth whenever anybody asks me for it. 
Where are we doing that in our lives? There is a remnant in Christ, and I believe many of us to be it, but it is a remnant that has realized that that is our penchant as people and has worked consistently to return to the Lord in good fellowship and to receive the blessing that is associated with that in the midst of our trials.